kids. I want to start with a question here this morning. And uh, for PKs, this is this is a hard question, right? But I want you to think back, if you can, to the first moment that you remember ever setting foot inside a church. Right? And for some of you, that's a long time. You can't even sort of ferret out all the, the memories that are all, mesh, are all sort of meshed together. But if you can, try and remember that moment. Not this church, but any church. It might be a very different looking church. It probably was very different than this. The, the music was probably way different. The, the lighting was definitely going to be different. But can you remember the very first moment? And can you... Can you empathize at all with any sense of awkwardness or anxiety the first time that you stepped in? I mean, that's, that's normal, isn't it? We step into, into a new place, a new thing. And we have that, that feeling of uncertainty. Am I going to belong? Am I going to fit in? Do I know what's going to happen here? And that happens even in Christian rooms. And there's something especially that happens sometimes in Christian gatherings that makes us feel like maybe we're not qualified to be here at all. Or, or, or maybe some people are going to see past whatever veneer is out there in front and find something in us that makes us somehow ineligible. I have these conversations with my neighbors on the street. They know sort of the the weird hours that I keep. I'm often leaving for the church when they're arriving home at the end of their work day. And they see me, they see me get up early on a Sunday morning, get all dressed up. Well, that's not that dressed up, but on my street, this is dressed up, right? We live over in Clarkson. We're just blue collar people, you know, but uh, you know, they see me getting up and, and our car pulls out very early on Sunday mornings. And and they say, you know, are you going to church? And they say it like it's the oddest thing in the world, like a kind of, of shock. It's sort of, do you believe in the tooth fairy? And I love to really kind of up the ante. You know, not only do I go to the church, I work there. I mean, I, I don't just believe in the tooth fairy. I work for him, okay? And that's, that's the idea. But, but underneath that, and what I hear in this, in their voices, and more and more these days, is this level of suspicion or discomfort about the church. It's kind of like, you know, we may be open to God, and, and there's spiritual stuff that's going on in our lives, but still there's this, there's this anxiety, there's this discomfort. And here's what's ironic about it. 2,000 years ago, during the life and ministry of Jesus, one of the most remarkable things that was true about his ministry is that the people that clustered around him came to him because they felt remarkably like they belonged. Like no matter who they were or what their story was or what they were trailing behind them, they weren't a disappointment to this remarkable Galilean rabbi. What is it that made that possible about Jesus? We began to unpack that question last week. At the beginning of every new season, we like to spend a couple of weeks just kind of recalibrating the vision for the church. What is it that we're about? And you remember there were three things that we identified that that, that Jesus was about, that, that he modeled and taught, that took this little movement in ancient Israel and exploded it out to the whole world. The first was the feeling for the first time that everybody was welcome, right? And we talked about that last week. And then this idea that they got rather clearly, because Jesus is not just about grace, he's also about truth, the idea that nobody was perfect. And then finally, and again, just dynamically, this is the power of God at work, the 
the idea that anything is possible. And that's the thrust of this three-week series, Who We Are. We define ourselves, or we want to define ourselves as a church by the same set of core values. Everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. And so between that idea that we talked about last week, everybody is, is welcome, and, and where we're going to land next week, that anything is possible, we invited Drew on the Sunday when we are talking about nobody's perfect. So Drew, thank you for coming and just, yeah. But here's the, the second question I want to pose to you. Is that a truth that we're willing to accept about ourselves? Uh, is it a truth for me that I'm willing to embrace about me, because here's what's fascinating. It's not that I don't realize that there aren't plenty of things that I could be a lot better at, better as a leader, better as a pastor and a father and a husband. What it is, though, it's the discomfort in acknowledging that lots of other people know that about me, too, because there's part of me that's really comfortable with this idea, this illusion that that even though I know I may be broken in all kinds of ways, I can imagine that everybody else out there thinks I'm doing just fine. How many of us live on in that sort of pretending gap, knowing that there's something wrong, but believing we're the only ones that know it? And just think about how hard we work to preserve the gap. Maybe it's the way that we dress. Uh, Maybe it's the car we choose to drive. It's certainly when we manufacture, and I mean manufacture, our resumes, right? Uh, It's it's how we post and what we post when we're on Facebook and and Instagram. For for our lives, I mean, so much of it, whether we want to admit it or not, is, is image management. We want to be known as a good, faithful husband, as a remarkably committed father, as the perfect employee. But there's this ever-increasing gap sometimes between, between what we put on and, and what we cover up, right? And for so many of us today, it's this widening gap in the stories that we tell other people about who we are and what we really know that we are that makes it hard to be in places like this. I, I grew up in a church-growing family. I, I'm so thankful for that. I have no hostility or resentment about that. That's just been a phenomenal thing. We spent most of our weekends at the church. And I heard an awful lot about this God who loved, they didn't say recklessly back then, right? But but, but who loved lavishly and unconditionally and loved broken, messed up people. But what was so odd for me is that when I would go to church on Sundays, the people that I looked at sitting all around me looked remarkably well put together. They were well-dressed, they were well-behaved, they were well-spoken, they looked pretty perfect to me. And what I didn't know at the time, and what sometimes we never really admit together, is that many of these people were dealing with harsh, deep, significant issues in their lives. Their marriages were breaking down, addictions were being covered up, families were in crisis. And for too many people, this is what Christianity is all about. It's people who live one kind of life out there during the week, and then they come in here on Sundays, and it feels like there's this facade, this, this veneer. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. And many of you, if you've encountered him in Scripture, you've been unable to gloss over this. Nothing in Jesus' ministry agitated him more than people who worked hard to preserve the gap. 
time and time again, when he gets angry, he's angry about the gap. He says things like this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You remember the word hypocrites. You know, that that actually wasn't an insult in Jesus' day. It was just a descriptive word. Hypocrite was the first century word for an actor. You actors who put on masks. The, the strongest warnings Jesus ever had were reserved not for irreligious people, but for religious people who were pretending to be something they were not, or especially trying to cover, cover over particular areas of sin or shame in their life. Why? Because Jesus came to create something real, something authentic, a, a place where people could, could be themselves without living out that gap. He came to acknowledge the reality that's really hard for us sometimes to acknowledge, that that nobody's perfect, and I'm at the front of that line. That takes us back to the story of the woman at the well. We looked at that last week. We're going to look at it again this morning and a final time next week. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 4, or flick on your devices. There's an iPad, actually. We're giving this away at the end of the service. I'm going to raffle that off. If you were here with us last week, and we spent some time in this story, so we're not going to go all the way through, but you remember, Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman at the side of a well. And if you remember, for first century Jews, especially first century Jewish rabbis, religious teachers, they were not supposed to be caught dead speaking in public with Samaritans, much less Samaritan women, and even worse, Samaritan women with a dubious past. The Jews in that day went to elaborate lengths geographically to avoid traveling through Samaria, even though it was the fastest route north to south and south to north again, Jerusalem to Galilee. They they went to these, well, GPS-guided detours so they didn't have to go through Samaria. So here's where we pick up the story. John four or John uh, 3 in, in verse 4 Jesus, it says, had to go through Samaria. Now what? Why did he have to go through Samaria? Nobody went through Samaria. Everybody else seemed to find a way to get around Samaria. Is it that the instructions weren't clear, the disciples were navigating and not reading them, or is there something deeper going on? You remember last week, whenever you see that expression in the Gospel of John, it's an indication this is the action or the will of God. It was necessary that Jesus go through Samaria. That's not a statement about navigation. That's a theological statement that this was part of God's design. So in verse 4, it says, He comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot, the ground with Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And there was Jacob's well. And Jesus, even though he was tired from the journey, sat down by the well around noontime. And a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus says, Hey, will you give me a drink? Now, you may not have noticed that because our eyes, our our 21st century eyes, don't pick up on the same details that 1st century eyes would. But there's at least three things that would stand out like a sore thumb for a 1st century reader. That the well was outside of the city. That the woman came alone. And that she came in the middle of the day at noontime. Now, why is that so strange? Because there certainly would have been wells inside of the city she could go to. And because women always traveled together publicly in groups for safety, and also for a sense of propriety. And, and because it's noon. I mean, it would be a day that made yesterday, which was, boy, that was a day, all right. Thank you, you volunteers, who for 
four, six, eight hours were out in that 38 degree heat. But you wouldn't do that if you didn't have to. You wouldn't go at noon. You'd go at dawn or you would go at dusk. Why is this woman outside the city all on her own in the middle of the day in the blistering sun? Well, you know the answer, right? She's an outcast. She's living on the edges of society, excluded from the community because of a past that that was just a source of of great pain and shame for here. Here's what's so amazing about Jesus, not just in this account at the well, but throughout his ministry. It seems like he gravitates towards those people. He's not looking for perfect people. In the footnotes it says, because there weren't any, but, but... but Jesus comes to this well in the same posture that he uses when he goes everywhere, looking for the lost, the lonely, the broken, and the struggling. Time and time again, Jesus would say, and the Gospels would say, that he came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Not for the found, but for the lost. And not only does Jesus not exclude this woman, but he talks to her, he engages her in the longest conversation that the Scriptures ever record between Jesus and another person. And he's vulnerable. He asks for a cup of water. And they have this fascinating little discourse. He says, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you about this for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The conversation continues. He explains what that means. And listen to what she says. The woman says, Sir, give me the water so that I don't go thirsty again. I don't have to keep coming back here again and again to draw water. You hear the desperation in her voice, right? Just give it to me. Give it so that I don't have to go outside the city all on my own in the middle of the day, shamed, imperfect, constantly reminded of the disastrous story of my life. That's why Jesus had to go to Samaria. Too many people in, in that day, too many people in our day, are living outside the city all alone. And they may put on a different face, but, but inside they're aching. They're aching over the story of what their life has become. And so here she's saying, I just I don't want to have to come here anymore. How can I be free of this? How can I get through it? How can I get past it? And listen to how Jesus responds. He says, verse 16, go call your husband and then come back. You can imagine a... An awkward silence there, right? Go call your husband, come back. And she's thinking, you know, that living water bit, that sounded really good. Can we get back to the living, just the gifts of God? No more of this. Go call your husband and come back. And Jesus turns around the corner in the story. And, and this is where the gospel gets kind of invasive, right? This is her personal life. What's Jesus doing prying into our personal lives? When it comes to spirituality, this is where many people want to get off the bus, right? It sounds really good when Jesus is offering living water, but when he wants to pry into my family life, my personal life, my thought life, that's when we check out. Go call your husband and come back. Why? Because he needs to talk about what it is that's really controlling her, why she's really out there by the well. And so she's thinking, and she's calculating. She's going to come up with just the right response. It's a great one. I have no husband. Sneaky, right? Jesus sees right through it. He says, you're right. This is verse 18. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. And the man you're with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And you remember, just a little tangent. We said this last week. First century 
women never had the right to initiate divorce. This is not an indication that she's scandalous. It's an indication that at least five times in her life, the man who had pledged himself to her, to her forever said, I'm done with you. Just one tragedy after another. Such an interesting response. I have no husband. True. But it's a true statement that hides the truth, right? It's so often how we want to live our spiritual lives. It's where good, respectable, church-going people hide. We, we hide behind a truth that hides the real truth. Somebody says, I'm struggling with my thought life. But the truth is, they're online every night, all night, looking at pornography. That's the truth, right? Somebody says, my marriage is in trouble. And it hides the truth that they're actually already outside of their marriage pursuing another relationship. Or we say, I'm going through a hard time, which is hiding the truth that they're coping with that hard time through their use chronically of alcohol or drugs. For some of us, we've gotten really good at avoiding the truth using these little polished up truths that hide the real truth. The real truth is we're afraid. We're afraid of what people are going to think. We're afraid there's going to be consequences. And the longer you're part of a church, it's the opposite of the way it should be, but the longer you're part of a church, the less freedom you feel to be truthful. At least when you're new to the church, you say, gosh, my life is a disaster. It's a mess, but I found God. And in fact, we love those testimonies, don't we? Life was a train wreck, and then God came. But fast forward 10 years, we expect that everything is going to be well put together. So we hide and we pretend. And Jesus would say, go call your husband and then come on back. Let's go to that part of your life that you want to hide, that you're on the run from, and then come back. Because that's where I want to meet you. Because no one's perfect. Including me. Maybe including you. I mean, you'll have to tell me. And Jesus' point isn't to condemn. His point is to redeem. But you can't redeem until you bring to the foot of the Master what it is that needs to be healed. At that very moment, this woman has to confront who she is and what's happened in her life. And she gets from Jesus the one thing that matters most, the one thing that could, and in fact does change her. You know what that is? It's grace. And if you know what that is, you know what Jesus is all about. You, you know what, what this Christianity thing has been all about for 2,000 years. If you're confused and you've seen all kinds of stuff in the media and, and you've watched all these movies about Jesus and listened to all the drivel that's online, there it is. It's grace. He didn't come for religious people or even spiritual people. He came for broken people. And, and you know, there's this shift in our culture where people say, are you religious? Like, that's a bad thing. And so we respond and say, no, but I, I'm kind of into spirituality. You know, well, maybe. But Jesus isn't really interested in either of those things. Jesus came for broken people because nobody's perfect. That's why he had to go to Samaria. It's why he had to come to earth. And that's why that in this room that we're in right now, he's still active seeking people out. This is still a well, right? And Jesus keeps showing up. I wonder, actually, if deep down one of the reasons why we have trouble accepting the truth about ourselves is because we get confused about what makes us worthy of love after all. 
I have to tell you that that in God's eyes, maybe this sounds reckless, right? But in God's eyes, the stuff that gets measured and treasured is different. You know, your worthiness has nothing to do with your intelligence or your appearance or your achievements, nothing to do with your behavior or beliefs. It has everything to do with with the way that Jesus looked at you. Paul put it this way. It is by grace that you have been saved. Isn't that good news? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Sounds like the same language at the well, right? Not by works so that, so that no one can boast. The mask has to go, right? But when the mask comes off, you find a, a love, a hope, a, a source of renewal that, that lets you dare for the first time maybe to be who you, who you really are. You can dare to be broken. You can dare to be struggling. You can dare to be a sinner. Just as he says we all are. And by the way, that's exactly what the Samaritan woman did as the story ends. Let's get back to her. Verse 28. Leaving her water jar, the woman went, woman went back to the town and said to the people, I want you to come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, she's not bragging about what she did. She's bragging. She's bragging about him. Could this be the Messiah, she says. And they came out of the town with her. They made their way back to him. Come see a man who knows everything about you. That could be the motto of every church. Come see a man who knows everything about you. Nobody's perfect, and yet you're still welcome with him. Last week, we worked on a little phrase. We said it together a couple of times. Just to, to sort of get over the hump of, uh, of wanting to be able to offer people an invitation to discover what we hope will be true of our church, that everybody's welcome. And it was a simple one. Hey, you should come to my church. You know, we got a great thing going on this weekend. we got this singer. You won't believe it. Yeah, but, hey, you know, you just had a new baby. You should come to my church. Bring them along. Hey, I know you just buried your husband. You should come to my church. Here's something you can practice for this week. And you can come just as you are. Come as you are. In fact, say that with me. You can come as you are. Say it. You can come as you are. Right? And when somebody asks, listen, do I have to believe certain things? You can say, nope, not for now. Just come as you are. They ask, do I have to dress in certain ways? Say, no, no, just come as you are. And they say, do I have to sit through a really long sermon? Yeah, you may have to. There's no escaping that for any of us, right? Long ago, one of our great theologians said in, in reflecting on what the church ought to be, he said, we're not here to be a museum for saints. We're here as a hospital for sinners. You come as you are. Come see a man who knows everything about you and still opens up his arms to welcome you. Come because there's a God who had to go through Samaria. He wouldn't go around it and is not going to go around you and not going to go around your past. Is going to go right through it. Come see the man who knows everything about you and loves you still. I got lots more. We're out of time, though. Yeah. Can, can I say this? If you've, never, if you've never made that journey, just in your head, to the serenity of a well, and imagine Jesus sitting there offering you the same invitation, 
If you've never sort of realized that deep down you don't have to pretend anymore, that you can surrender, see Jesus for who he is, and, and then learn to see yourself. You know, social psychology has this idea of the looking glass. We tend to become or want to become like the person who is most important to us, like the way they see us. Right? So if there's a way that a mentor sees you or a spouse sees you, we want to become like that. What if the most important person in your life was Jesus? What if you're able to become the person that he sees when he looks at you? Maybe it's the first time for you. Boy, 2,000 years it's been happening. It could happen here right this morning. The well is here. Jesus is here. You pray with me. Jesus, you, you call us to come just as we are. And you've come into this place not because we've got it all together or put our lives back together, not because we're always doing great. You've entered into this room because... Some of us are hurting. Some of us are broken. Some of us are lost. And you had to. Because you love us. Because no one's perfect. Because we just don't want to pretend anymore. We want to take that first step right now of surrendering ourselves, of opening up our lives, taking off the mask. We want you to come right in the middle of the the part of our life, the story of our past that we have the most difficulty facing up to. We know that's where you want to go anyway. That's where you'll meet us. And you have more than enough grace to deal with what's there. And Jesus, how amazing it is that today we're invited to see ourselves maybe for the first time as you see us. Loved and accepted, worth dying for. Alongside a handshake, and brace, a piece of cake, I hope that's the gift that your people get to leave with today. Lord, let it come. In Jesus' name, amen.